0: I invite the rest of us to turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 4. We're only going to be here for just a minute, but we've been studying Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. Of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, this is the first one he wrote around AD 48. He wrote to a few young churches that he had planted a few years earlier in the region of southern Galatia, which is why it's called the letter to the Galatians. Within a year or two of Paul planting these churches, they were infiltrated with a teaching that opposed the one true gospel, the gospel message that has the power to save all who believe it. That's why Galatians has been called the battle for the gospel. So Paul explained autobiographically in the first two chapters, that the gospel that he preaches is the one true gospel that has come from God. And then he explains in chapters 3 and 4, theologically, how the gospel he preaches fits with the whole structure of the Bible. The first two chapters are autobiographical, chapters 3 and 4 are theological. Last week on Christmas Eve, we studied the first portion of chapter 4 where Paul explains the Messiah's mission statement. Look particularly at Galatians 4-5. Here's why Jesus came. God sent forth his Son, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In a word, Jesus came to turn condemned slaves of sin and death into richly endowed children of God. And Paul went on to describe there in verse 6 that for all whom Jesus the Messiah has redeemed, quote, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father. In other words, The mission of God the Son was to make it possible for all who believe to become children of God. And when we trust Jesus, the Spirit of God is sent into our hearts to personally minister to us assurance of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That we are children of God. All because of Jesus. Because Jesus has died for us, because we're united with Jesus, we're children of God forever. That's where we ended last week. I have been prayerfully considering what to preach here on New Year's Eve for many weeks, in fact, a few months, and I have been burdened for complementing the study of last week in another passage in which Paul, in much greater detail, explains. What that means that we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that passage is Romans 8. So I'm going to invite you now to turn over to Romans 8. I want to carefully read and as simply as possible explain the first 27 verses of Romans 8. Paul wrote this letter. About 10 years after his letter to the Galatians. The letter to the Galatians is now divided into six chapters. The letter to the Romans is divided into 16. It's a much longer book. If Galatians is a succinct defense of the gospel, Romans is a systematic exposition of the gospel. In Romans 1 through 4, Paul explains that we can't be saved by our works, but we must be saved by faith in Jesus who died for us and rose again. And then in Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7, the three chapters that precede where we're at today, Paul explains that those who trust in Jesus are forever secure. But, chapter 6 and 7, that security does not lead us to live lawlessly. Here in chapter 8 he concludes the section on security. The simplest way of saying it is, true Christians don't live with a hope-so attitude when it comes to eternity. You know, I hope I get to heaven. If you're thinking, I hope I get to heaven, you either don't understand the gospel or you don't understand the security that God has designed, that is explained in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, what God wants you to know. God doesn't want any Christian to live with a hope so. No, everyone who's taken refuge in Jesus should live with a confidence, a security, an assurance that we are forever secure. That's the whole point of Romans 8. I'm going to start reading verses 1 through 4. in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Throughout this eighth chapter of Romans, Paul's main point is that those who are reconciled to God the Father, through faith in God the Son, are forever secure. And we're certain of it, we're assured of it, because God the Spirit is working in us. If you look back at the first four verses that we just read, you can see Paul's Trinitarian thinking. It's very similar to Galatians 4. Here in Romans 8.3, he says, God the Father did what the law couldn't do. He sent his own son as a human to die in the place of sinful, law-breaking humans. Jesus died for our sin, for our law-breaking. And then in verse 4, God the Spirit indwells everyone who's been united to Jesus, to the perfectly righteous Jesus. And he orders our steps in the direction of obeying Jesus. Christians are changed people. When we trust God the Son, we're given God the Spirit. We're changed people. I just want to echo how Greg started the service this morning. Christians are not people who think that we are better than others. We're not like that self-righteous Pharisee who looked over at that tax collector and said, thank you God that I'm not like those, those people over there. That is not the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian says, I can't save myself. I'm a lawbreaker. And I'm condemned by the law to die, to die forever, justly condemned in hell. But God did what I couldn't. God did what the law couldn't. God sent his son, and his son died for me. He represented me. And if I take refuge in him, I can be forgiven. Do you hear? Christians never think, I'm good, I'm smart. I believe Jesus. We think Jesus did it all. Apart from Jesus, I have no hope. God sent Jesus and did for me what needed to be done. God, I glory in you. I don't glory in myself at all. If you have never turned to Jesus, I urge you to turn away from your lawbreaking and your efforts to try to save yourself through law-keeping. I urge you to take refuge in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. Call on the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who died and rose again. Say, Lord Jesus, save me, rescue me from my sin, forgive me. Jesus, change my status of condemnation into justification. Only you can do it. You need to do this. Christians are changed people. We've taken refuge in God the Son and been given God the Spirit. So how is God's Spirit at work within us? This is what we focus on in the rest of the passage. This is what Paul focuses on. What is the proof that God's Spirit is truly at work within us? Millions of Christians throughout the world have nebulous, even worse, erroneous ideas about how God's Spirit works we must listen to the Apostle explain. We're going to start in verses 5 through 11. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. It's a powerful statement that indicates that Every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit. Everyone who's turned from sin and trusted in Jesus has the Spirit. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In verses 5 through 11, Paul teaches that God's Spirit dominates your affections, Christian. Christian, your eventual liberation from every shred of sin and death is made certain by how God's life giving Spirit now dominates your heart. Sometimes people wrestle with understanding these verses because. It's unclear to them when they read life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit. And so it's really critical that you essentially put into your own words what Paul means. The flesh is living apart from the authority of Jesus and life in the spirit is living under the authority of Jesus. So if you are living according to the flesh, it means you are Dominated Your life, your affections, your habits are dominated by living in a way that ignores Jesus' authority. And living according to the Spirit means that your life is dominated by a desire to live under Jesus' authority. That's because the Holy Spirit, to live in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit most fundamentally glorifies God's Son. He works in our wills, So that what dominates us is not craving for being my own authority, craving for deviance, for doing what's wrong, but a craving to love Jesus, to please Jesus, to obey Jesus. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. So living according to the Spirit is living a life that loves and seeks to obey Jesus. Christians are changed people. The Spirit is in us to to dominate our affections we are not perfect people we are far from it but we are changed people we're changed at the heart level paul says in this passage so that we're alive to god the sad reality is that many professing christians say they say publicly they say when asked My faith makes little or no difference in my life. One pastor a generation ago, James Montgomery Boyce, points out from Gallup polls in his era that, quote, although 50 to 60 million Americans claim to be born again, those for whom religion actually makes a difference are about one in eight. He says, quote, Many who consider themselves to be Christians, even in so called evangelical churches, are not Christians. According to the apostle, God's life giving spirit dominates. To dominate does not mean that he's the only power in your heart. I nearly gave up my faith as a teenager because I thought, if God's spirit is at work in me, then I wouldn't have any sinful desires. Not true. The old nature still remains. But the truth of the passage is that the dominant affection over time is the spirit. Paul continues his explanation of this to his brothers and sisters in the church at Rome. Let's pick up in verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, he writes, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, as if Jesus' authority doesn't matter. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. He means die eternally. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Here in verses 12 through 17, Paul explains a second way we know God's Spirit is at work within us. He continually summons you to duty. Another way of saying it is, Christian, your eventual liberation, freedom from every shred of sin and death is made certain by how God's Spirit right now is at work in you, leading you to wage war against the sin that remains in you. Again, I say millions of Christians have a distorted and an unbiblical idea of how God's Spirit works in us, how he leads us. Many Christians think you need to listen for the still small voice of the Spirit in your decision making. I would say, don't listen for small voices. Many think that the Spirit leads us to speak in unintelligible and uninterpreted languages. That's not what the Apostle says, what it means to be led by the Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14. To be led by the Spirit has everything to do with spiritual warfare. The Spirit leads us to put to death the sin that remains in our hearts and lives. It's like here, the leading of the Spirit is the leading of a military commander who keeps summoning you, his troops, saying, get on the front lines, keep fighting. Keep fighting against all the things in your life that aren't Christ-like. So Christian, you know that you are led by God's Spirit. If you're regularly grieving over your sin and repenting of it. If you're strategizing ways to pursue change with an open Bible and with some open conversations with Christian friends. If your days are peppered with prayer. Lead me not into temptation, deliver me Lord from the evil one. It's ironic that those in whom the Spirit is working, according to Romans 8, don't often feel spiritual. Or at least spiritual as it's caricatured as quiet and meditative and lofty. No, those who are truly spiritual feel weary, battle-worn, we often feel like failures. We feel frustrated that there's so much in us that's still unlike Christ. That's a spiritual person. The Spirit continually leads Christ's people into spiritual warfare. As J.C. Ryle, an Anglican pastor in Liverpool about 150 years ago put it, quote, there are a lot of Christians who don't have any fight about them. And it makes us wonder if they're true Christians because True Christianity is a fight. He says it's a fight of perpetual necessity. It admits of no breathing time, no armistice, no truths. It's a battle on weekdays as well as Sundays, in private as well as in public. He says the Christian warfare unceasingly must go on. That's how you know if you're a child of God, according to verses uh, 13 and 14. Because the Spirit is leading you to put to death the sin that remains within you. Paul had asserted in verse 14 that those who are led by God's Spirit into this kind of warfare demonstrate that they're God's children. And he goes on to say, children cry to their father when they suffer. And children after temporary suffering, inherit all that belongs to their father. Children cry and children inherit. Notice verse 15, that every Christian has received the spirit of adoption. God has adopted every condemned sinner who repents and turns to Jesus. The definition of this term adopted means that God has formally and legally declared that we who were not naturally his children are henceforth to be treated and cared for as his very own. And it includes the complete rights of inheritance. We're adopted. We've received the spirit of adoption. Because every Christian has the spirit of adoption indwelling our spirits. Every Christian has an instinctive sense that we belong to God all because of what Jesus did for us. So when we find ourselves in trouble, like little children, we look up and hold our hands out to God and say, Daddy, help! Daddy, help! Christian, whether you come from a solid home or a broken home, whether you've had a loving dad or an absentee or abusive dad, you've been adopted by the perfect Father whose love for you is from everlasting to everlasting. In another passage, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Paul says that God's electing love for you set his love on you before creation in order that you would be adopted as his child. You've been adopted by the perfect Father whose love for you is from everlasting to everlasting. So, Christians, even as we are surrounded by trials, we must not live in bondage to discouragement or fear. It's not what any loving parent wants for their children. They don't want them to live in discouragement and fear. We want to assure our children, I am here. Let's now read the last portion that we're going to read today, verses 18 through 27. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. It's not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Wow. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, who subjected it in hope. In hope... That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. The curse that now blankets it will be lifted. And all of creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation is groaning until the curse is forever lifted. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, the complete realization of our inheritance now that we're children of God. So creation groans until the curse is forever lifted. But according to these verses, verse 23, Christians, those who are indwelt by God's Spirit, are groaning until the curse is forever lifted. Paul goes on and explains, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen isn't really hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then verses 28, 29, and 30 is where Paul goes on to explain in some of the most precious words of Scripture that God's will is to bring to glory every person he's justified through Christ. Remarkably, it's not just creation that's groaning until the curse is lifted. It's not just Christians that are groaning until the curse is lifted, but God's Spirit too intercedes for us with groanings. He's groaning within every Christian, even as he prays for us according to the will of God, prays for us to inherit the glory that God has willed for us. He's groaning within us. So the Spirit is going to continue to groan in us until the curse is forever lifted and we're glorified, until we're perfectly like Jesus. I just say the last section there we read, We learn how the Spirit of God works in us. The Spirit groans for you to experience glory. Christian, your eventual liberation from every shred of sin and death is made certain, is assured to you by how God's Spirit is working in you to support your groaning for glory, to strengthen your groaning for glory. I need to clarify. Every human groans under suffering. All of creation, in fact, is groaning. Every human groans under suffering, but Christian groaning is different. When suffering, Christians groan for glory. Christians ache to see Jesus. Christians ache to be made like Jesus. And that's what the Spirit is encouraging within us. The Spirit is fueling, as it were, our groans. Groans that many times cannot even be expressed in words. If we could verbalize it, it might be something like, God, no matter what the suffering I'm going through, no matter what it is or or how long it goes, it doesn't matter how long I have to wait. Father, I just want Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to see him. I want to be forever with him. I think if we got down to the depths in those times when we don't even know what to pray and we can't even verbalize it, the Spirit is fueling our groans for glory. In the first section that we read, verse 2, Paul refers to God's spirit as the spirit of life. And that focus on the spirit, the life-giving spirit, continues through the first third or so of the chapter. The spirit is the one who's given us life. He's given us the life that Jesus earned for us. He's united us with the resurrection of Jesus. And... That the spirit of life is at work in us assures us that we will inherit eternal life. In the second section, right in the heart of it, verse 15, Paul refers to God's spirit as the spirit of adoption. Who assures us that we, because of Jesus, permanently belong to God and will eternally inherit all that belongs to God. We've received the spirit of life. We've received the spirit of adoption. And interestingly, in verse 23, Paul refers to God's spirit as the first fruits of the spirit. He's the spirit that is the first fruits. Hmm. The first fruits was the first ingathering of harvest season. And it was just a small foretaste that the full Large harvest was soon to come. Are you someone who has experienced the first taste of the harvest to come because the Spirit is at work in you? Are your affections for Jesus not perfectly, but truly? Are you being summoned? To keep warring against the unChristlikeness that's in you? It's not that you never fail. But you never stop fighting. Are you groaning for glory? To see Jesus, to be made like Jesus. You say, I want it to be there so much more than it is, but is it there? Are these affections within you? <laughs> Is God working in you to keep fighting your sin and to keep groaning for glory? Not perfectly, but truly. According to the apostle, that's how the Spirit works. That's the Spirit within you. And if the Spirit's in you, you're forever secure. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing today or tomorrow will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would assure us based on your word. Oh God, I pray That we would examine ourselves, not for perfection, but that we would examine ourselves and see that you truly are at work within us. Lord, I pray that for everyone who's taken refuge in Jesus, that we would understand how your spirit works and that we would be assured. God, I pray for many people in here who may be unsettled that you would lead them this week. May they keep returning and returning and returning to your word, to Romans 8. May they keep studying hard what you spoke through Paul until they know for certain that they're in Christ, that they've taken refuge in Jesus. Oh God, we are not the best fruit testers. God, I pray that you would surround us with encouraging brothers and sisters to build us up. Friends who will tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. God, I pray that we wouldn't trust ourselves, but trust wholly in Jesus. He is our security. And God, I pray that you would use your word to work a confidence in us that you mean for every child of yours to possess. Please work in these ways, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.